The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNW presents New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton. Drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New focus on wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you have a money question for the show, I'd like to hear it. Just shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. Emails, give me content. Let me know what you guys want to talk about this early in the morning. <clears throat> Lots of talk lately on Capitol Hill regarding the SALT limitations, the state and local income tax limitations, which people in California and Oregon and other states like New York, New Jersey know all too well. This was the situation where in after the Trump tax cuts in 2017, where suddenly you were not allowed to deduct all of your state and local income taxes off of your federal return. So prior to 2017, you could take, here's what I paid in state income tax in a state like Oregon and California. And here's what I paid my property taxes. And that was a line item deduction if you itemized your deductions on your federal return. And all of a sudden, that was limited to $10,000. So that really affected people that had high property taxes and high state income taxes. So what's interesting is where it really affected most people is the upper middle class in states like California and New York. Because a lot of times the high, the super high income earners, when they would file their tax return, would get hit with alternative minimum tax and they would lose that deduction anyway. But I think it kind of hit the, you know, the if you could kind of picture a, a young couple uh, both making into six figures, finally able to afford to buy a very expensive Bay Area home. And the next year, all of a sudden, they were paying more in income taxes because they were paying well over you know, 20 grand for property taxes, let alone their state income tax. So SALT has emerged as one of the key issues for a contingent of House Democrats um, that are representing high-tax areas like New York, New Jersey, Oregon, California. Uh, they said that SALT, which was restricted in the 2017 Republican tax law, must be included in the Biden agenda to win their votes. And so I brought this up because I had an email question of somebody that used Prop 19, that new ability for you to, every couple of years, sell your Bay Area home, um, you know, basically downsize and roll your property tax base from one home to anywhere in California now. So there's a couple that they had, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Had a home that they sold for over two and a half million dollars in Palo Alto. They were only paying, I think it was $4,200 a year in property taxes. Crazy, right? Yeah, that, that it's... <laughs> now I, I, can, I can tell you this for sure. Now that your kids will no longer get your property tax base on your home when they inherit it, there's going to be a lot more homes sold to death for sure. 
Because with the the increase in the property taxes that people have and where home prices are, the you know keeping it as a rental isn't going to make much sense. But anyways, they you know used the Prop 19 to sell, sold in Palo Alto. Um, they're downsizing by a little more than a half a million in Santa Cruz. So their email question was, "Do I do a mortgage or not? I have enough cash from the sale of my house to buy this thing outright, but is that a wise thing to do? Should I should I?" Have a mortgage or shouldn't I? Good problem to have, right? Um, but it's going to be definitely more common as people do this in the Bay Area. You can actually increase in size now, too. So if you go from a 2 million to 3 million, you can keep your property tax base um, on the first 2 million in a new home, and then you're paying normal property taxes on the increase. So, you know, there's age and time restrictions and things like that. But, you know, Prop 19. It could definitely help some people move to other places in California and can keep that property tax base. It's it's a good thing there. Um, so if you're going to get a mortgage, you're going to keep a mortgage on your home in retirement. You have to understand how taxes work. So I don't know why I'm trying to do this at you know six ten in the morning to talk about taxes, but here we go. Um. If you're going to do a mortgage in retirement or if you're doing a situation like this where you're downsizing, you got a bunch of cash and you're trying to say, do I buy this cat house for all cash or do I just pay it off and move on? First, you have to realize how the standard deduction works. Because when you file your tax return, in the background, there's a couple of calculations going on. There's the normal standard deduction that everybody gets, which is $25,100 for married couples or $12,550 for single people. Right. No matter what, if you don't have any mortgage or property taxes or anything, that's the amount of money that you can make where you pay zero income taxes. Twenty five thousand one hundred married, twelve thousand five fifty for single. On top of that, if you're sixty five or older, you get an extra thirteen hundred fifty if you're single, or twenty seven hundred if you're married. Right. So if you're sixty five in this situation that this couple is asking me about, and they're married, they're both over sixty five. $27,800 is their standard deduction, right? That's that's what they get to take no matter whether or not they have a mortgage or property taxes or anything. So their alternative is to do it itemized deductions. And you're typically answering these questions. If you do like TurboTax, you're answering these questions. They're going to ask you, how much is your mortgage deduction? How much is your property taxes? How much is your state income taxes? So when you do your itemized deductions, you can deduct on this Schedule A, you put in your mortgage interest on debt up to $750,000 of acquisition debt, not including HELOC anymore. Your charitable gifts um, and your state and local property taxes up to $10,000. So you list all of your taxes for your state and local income taxes on the Schedule A, but then over to the right, it says, you know, the lesser of your state and local income taxes were 10 grand. So it gets topped out at 10 grand. So if you think about it, then if you're 65, you're married, your, your standard deduction is 27,800. How much mortgage interest do you need to have to, to actually beat out and win over the standard deduction. Well, if you look at the 27,800 standard deduction, and we know that between state 
in local income taxes, you're you're paying at least ten thousand there. So you you take away that salt limitation of ten grand. That means your other deductions between your mortgage and charities need to be over seventeen thousand dollars eight hundred. Seventeen thousand eight hundred dollars. Boy, it's early. Ugh. So, so your mortgage interest in this scenario needs to be over seventeen thousand eight hundred. So, how big does your mortgage need to be? Well, at two point seven five percent on a thirty year mortgage, you'd have to have a mortgage of six hundred and forty seven thousand two hundred and seventy two dollars at two point seven five to get that much interest to write off on your Schedule A. And granted, that's not forever because it's a declining number because of amortization. But that payment's $2,642 a month or $31,704 per year. Okay, so that's a little less than 5% of the mortgage amount would be your payment, your draw. So you're kind of saying, do I pay this thing off or do I invest $647,000 so I can have a mortgage and itemize my deductions? And is 5% of a safe draw rate? There's a lot of decisions that had to have to be made there. A lot of decisions. And when you're in this situation in retirement, it also depends on where is the rest of your money. If you were to buy this house with all cash, do you have mostly IRAs left over? Do you have a mix of IRAs and cash and taxable accounts? What's the situation? What should you do? What makes sense? And what are the risks? We're going to deal with a situation that not most people in America get to deal with, but it's becoming pretty common in the Bay Area for people that are retiring to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm downsizing or my home's close to being paid off. Should I have a mortgage? Should I not have a mortgage? And it's really important to consult with a fee-only fiduciary financial planner, certified financial planner. That's step number one, because the job of a fee-only fiduciary-based certified financial planner is they have to deliver advice in your best interest. And oftentimes, there's not one right money answer. Oftentimes, it's a couple of options and you got to do what feels right to the person or to the couple and, and go through the pros and cons. If you're going to go to somebody that works off of commission by selling investment products like loaded mutual funds, uh, annuities, or they work for a large brokerage firm that has quotas that they have to you know, get a certain amount of assets under management to keep their job, then they're going to say, no, 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 don't pay off the house. We're going to take this money and we're going to invest it and you'll be better off with a mortgage because the mortgage gives you a tax deduction. Well, the math that we just went over in terms of what the standard deduction is under the current law, because the 2017 Tax Act gave us a much higher standard deduction. It made it so the majority of Americans don't itemize their deductions, especially in states that don't have high income taxes or high property taxes. So what we did is just determine that if this couple that's both over 65 is going to have a mortgage on this house that they're downsizing, selling one house that they owned forever in Palo Alto. They're selling it. They're taking the cash. They're moving to Santa Cruz, downsizing their home, living closer to the water. Um, the question is, do they have a mortgage? Should they have a mortgage or not? And in order to have a mortgage high enough to where your itemized deductions exceed your standard deduction, 
it's going to be almost $650,000 mortgage, which is a payment of about $2,642 a month. And so the idea is that, okay, you have a mortgage. You're, you're using some of the bank's money to purchase the house. And that way you keep that six hundred and fifty grand invested in a balanced portfolio. And in this case, you're going to have to draw 5% out per year to pay down the mortgage. And as we've talked about in, in previous shows, at age 65, 3.5% is a safer draw rate because of where fixed income or, or bonds are these days. It used to be 5 or it used to be 4 rather at 65. Now it's more like 3, 3.5. So that's a little bit heavy on the draw rate. So it, it makes it a little... It's a, it's a tough question. Here's the pros of having a mortgage high enough to make sure that your itemized deductions are bigger than your standard deduction. As you age, your healthcare costs go way up. They go way up. And anything over 10% of your adjusted gross income is another deduction on your itemized deductions. So that's also important to consider here because your typical itemized deductions are going to be your home mortgage, your charitable contributions, and your healthcare expenses. And then also your state and local income taxes, which is currently capped out at 10 grand. So if you foresee that your healthcare costs are going to be you know, higher as you age, or even higher right now, that might make it a good idea to have the mortgage. There's certain situations that our certified financial planners deal with. Oftentimes, it's an older couple. And you know they have a lot of cash, Social Security, and things like that. But all of a sudden, they have these really high medical expenses. But their income literally isn't high enough to take advantage of deducting that medical cost of over 2% of your adjusted gross income. So a lot of times, we'll do a large IRA to a Roth conversion or a large withdrawal from the IRA to get their income up high enough so that they can actually deduct those medical expenses. That makes sense. Tax planning is a big thing in retirement. So should you have a mortgage or not? Well, as I mentioned before, if you're in in this situation, you can see it's kind of a wash over unless your mortgage is over 650 because interest rates are so low. So it kind of depends on what your financial situation is. If this couple has mostly IRAs left over once they purchase this new house, don't forget when you purchase a house, you're going to have some furnishing costs and all those other things. If after you've purchased this house with all cash and the majority of what you have left over to your name is in IRAs, where everything you pull out is 100% taxable, I would absolutely do the mortgage. Absolutely do the mortgage. Even if you want to pay it off quicker than a 30-year mortgage, do the mortgage. It creates more flexibility in your life. You end up leaving $650,000 outside of your IRA accounts. It's kind of your emergency reserve, your slush fund. Your, because think about it. If, if all you have in, is IRAs in retirement and you have to do a major repair to your home or buy a new car or whatever, you're paying huge taxes on when you make those large withdrawals. Now, the alternative situation is, let's say you're a person and, and you're doing this. And after you, you pretend that, okay, after I buy this home and with all cash... I still have a, uh, I have cash, probably too much cash. I have taxable accounts and I have IRAs. I've got a mix of assets. Well, if a person has way too much cash sitting on the sidelines, more than three years worth of portfolio draws sitting on the sidelines, 
and they are not willing to invest more in stocks, and then their only alternative is bonds, which is the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index is yielding under 2% right now. So you're actually losing money versus the mortgage, even after the deduction. I would probably pay it off. So that's another scenario, right? So it's two scenarios, one where I'd have a mortgage and one where I'd probably pay it off because I have enough stocks, I have enough bonds, I have way too much cash. My cash isn't doing anything these days. You can get mostly a half a percent like an Allied Capital or a Marcus or you know any of these FDIC and online banks, only a half a percent on cash. That's the lowest in the 28 years that I've been in the business. So in that kind of scenario, I'd probably just pay it off, right? So it really depends on your situation, people. It, it, it does. But what's interesting is the standard deduction went way up and interest rates are way down. So to have a mortgage that helps you itemize your deductions to get a higher deduction than everybody's standard deduction, married couple finally jointly over age 65, that mortgage is about 650 grand. And for a lot of people, that feels very uncomfortable to have that debt going into retirement. So it's a tough choice. And that's why there's you know no right answer here. And it can also change again if they repeal the SALT limitations. If they repeal the SALT limitations, we'll be able to have itemized deductions with a lower uh, mortgage amount because your SALT limitations will go up. That makes sense. So it's something we're definitely keeping an eye on. And it really comes into play in any type of situation. Because as I've mentioned before, if you're you know, 20 years into a 30-year fixed mortgage, you're not having much interest to write off on your itemized deduction. So if you have too much cash on the sidelines and you don't want any more stocks, feel free to pay off that mortgage. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. Now, Mike asked, uh, he said, first of all, he said, hi, Chad, thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, I think he's from uh, Hawaii because he ended the email in Mahalo. But um, he says, I saw that BlackRock is adding annuities to 401k plans and wanted to get any thoughts you may have on this. All right. So first of all, love BlackRock. Oddly enough, I'm drinking out of a BlackRock coffee cup right now. They do a lot to keep good investment products out there with iShares and everything else to keep investing costs low for people with good ETFs and and other products. Um, They're not an insurance company. So this is pretty interesting because they don't sell annuities. But they do a lot of 401k plans. For example, I think Cisco is in, uh, uses BlackRock for the 401k plan. Um, so whatever, what are annuities in 401k plans? This, there's a law that was passed a couple of years ago that made it so these things were going to pop up. And honestly, I was kind of frightened about it because most annuities are complete garbage. Like 99% of annuities are horrible investment products and laced in hidden fees and things like that. And I know this very well. I started in the business 28 years ago dealing strictly with annuities and insurance products with my grandfather. And I fell in love with financial planning, but I, within two years, despised sales and despised insurance agents hiding as investment advisors. I, I, 
that's what I wanted to go fee only because I did not think that you should have commissions and delivering people retirement advice mixed together. It's, it's very bad. That's why the Department of Labor is trying to pass laws against it and everything else. So there's a lot more laws in other countries, but not ours. Anyway, and annuities have cost people a lot of money. So 401ks and annuities. First of all, there's two types of annuities that provide lifetime income in retirement. The first one is the most common, which is a fixed immediate annuity, where you're going to give, let's say it's $100,000 to an insurance company and they're saying, okay, we're going to pay you $5,000 a year for the rest of your life, no matter how long you live. Even if you live to 110, they're going to give you $5,000, right? And a lot of people think, oh, that sounds good. That's a 5% rate of return. It's not. They're paying most of your money back and they have a calculation based on your life expectancy. And so really, it's only like a 3% rate of return. If you do the math and say, how long is this money going to last if I I last till age 100? So keep that in mind. I would not touch any fixed immediate annuities with a 10-foot pole right now because interest rates are historically low. So why would you give money to insurance companies, which will continue to struggle a bit with really low interest rates, and think that, oh yeah, they're, they're going to be around forever. They'll be fine. <laughs> so, Because again, if, if you'd have to live past age 86 for them to be actually giving... For, them, for the insurance company to be giving you anything else other than your money, if you get what I'm saying. So they're, they're, this is a good deal for the insurance companies right now. The other one is a variable annuity with a lifetime income guarantee where the underlying portfolio is in sub-accounts that are invested in stocks and bonds. So you got some growth potential there. And, but there's an income guarantee for life, usually around 4 or 5% of the original investment. And that means that if you're pulling out, let's say you put in a hundred grand and you're pulling out five grand a year, but you have poor stock market performance. So by age 85, your account value is zero. And so if you, you died, your heirs get nothing. But if your account value is zero, they'll still continue to pay you that 5% for the rest of your life. And so that makes people feel somewhat comfortable. The problem is, well, there's a couple of problems. First of all, most of those variable annuities that are sold by people that work at banks and large brokerage firms have so much in fees, it's insane. And we're talking about all-in fees between the sub-accounts, the mortality expense, all of these other things. It, the fees are crazy, 3% or more. And when I do the math, when I sit there and I, I, I say, okay, if, if I'm going to have $100,000 and I'm going to invest it and pull $5,000 out a year, and let's say I'm only earning 3%, I mean, the money still lasts till age like 95, just on its own. So the insurance company sitting there charging you up to 3% a year to only be on the hook if you, one, earn less than 3% on the portfolio, and two, live past age 90. So they're not taking much risk here, people. They, 
even if you look at the worst 10-year period that we've had in a long time, which is 2007 to 2017, that 10-year period, a globally diversified balanced portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, still averaged around 5%. Uh, and that's if you invested at the top of the market in 2007, went through the Great Recession where the stock market had a huge decline, and then today. So it, they're not really guaranteeing that much, right? So that's why most of those annuities are terrible when it's compared to a balanced portfolio. Now, where they can come into play is there's some no-load variable annuities with income guarantees that despite all the fees, they can be better than bonds as long as the 10-year treasury stays under 4%. After that, pretty much all annuities are going to be garbage. So the only time that we look at variable annuities with income guarantees is if we have a very conservative investor that's that their portfolio is starting to become less than 60% in stocks and they're because they're very conservative so maybe they're more like I usually only invest in 30 40% stocks and the rest in bonds well bonds not super i i that's that's unless they're individual bonds that you've already bought you're asking for a bit of pain as interest rates rise and so it might make you feel willing to take some of your bond money and put it in a variable annuity that's half stocks, half bonds. So you get a little bit more growth potential. The growth potential of stocks probably make up for the added fees. But no matter what happens, you'll know you're going to get the income for the rest of your life and you can do it joint with a spouse. Those are the, those good no-load options though are few and far between. Don't ever go and get those from a commission-based person. All right, So that's the pros and the cons of those annuities. So let me get back then to this more in the Wall Street Journal article that was discussing BlackRock adding annuities to their 401k and how they're actually going to do this. BlackRock said five employers have signed up for new retirement products that will allow workers to receive a stream of payments for the rest of their lives. Um, I think AutoNation was one of them. Employers who offer retirement plans worry about annuities' complexity and, and their costs, and, and they get worried about being sued if the insurer that stands behind the annuities fails to make the payments. But the 2019 law that I mentioned before uh, passed and protects em- employers from legal liability, which is scary. <laughs> I don't like that. But BlackRock offering is one of the first from a major asset manager, according to Wall Street Journal, since the law passed. Workers at electric utility Tennessee Valley Authority, car parts provider, advanced auto parts, and three other companies have the new annuity products in their plan now. That means that there's around 100,000 US employees that have this option. Now, like I said, and like Black, uh, Wall Street Journal says in this article, BlackRock, which has $9.5 trillion in assets, isn't an insurance company. The annuities in the plan will be issued initially by insurers Bright House Financial, I think they used to be MetLife or something like that, and Equitable Holdings. And so what BlackRock is doing is negotiating cheaper annuity rates with these companies to put them in the plan. So the new series of target date funds when are offered in these accounts. So what they're doing is they're taking target date funds. You know those type of funds where you invest in them very early? They're very equity heavy. And then as you age, they automatically become more invested in in bonds and cash. So they're offering these retirement date funds, those asset allocation funds that become more conservative as you age. 
they're putting an extra cost on top of them, only about 0.1% or $10 for every $10,000 you have in the plan. Um, and the fee could be capped out at 0.16%. That's actually really good. I mean, that's you know 1% less than what most no-load variable annuities offer. So for those that have too much invested in bonds and they're looking to take more risk, but they want to have some sort of income backup guarantee, it may not be a bad option if a person is very close to retirement, you know, like within five or 10 years. So it's something to think about, research and look at. Is this, am I too heavily invested in stocks and I need to trim back, but I don't want to buy bonds? This could be a good option. One of the big drawbacks, though, in my opinion, is that will you be able to take this with you when you leave your employer? Because it's an awful idea once you retire and leave to leave your money in a 401k plan because 401k plans can go through blackout periods, things like that. If the company is purchased and the 401k plan is being taken over or if the company decides to, hey, we don't want to use BlackRock anymore. We want to use Vanguard. Then companies go through blackout periods and it makes it very difficult for people to get their money out. And there's also estate planning issues that can arise out of that. So if I can't roll that retirement you know, income guarantee contract out of the 401k when I retire, I'm not interested. Uh, okay. So getting back to it, I, you know, just doing the math. If, if, if you're getting close to retirement or you're in retirement and somebody's trying to sell you an annuity, it's really easy to, to run a spreadsheet and say, okay, if... if Let's say the annuity contract is, no matter what happens to the investments, is offering you 4.5% lifetime income guarantee. What are they truly guaranteeing? Where, how bad does the market have to be for the insurance company to ever have to pay you? So if you invested $100,000 and drew forty five dollars a year, as long as you earned 3%, your money would last till age 100. There's literally never been a 10-year period or like let alone a 20, where the, a balanced portfolio has done less than that. Now, could just bonds do less than that? Yeah. So while it is a horrible idea to, to, to say, uh, I'm, I've got a 60-40 portfolio, I'm going to sell evenly out and just buy an annuity because the income sounds great. No, it'd be more like, you know what? I got too much stocks. I don't want to... I need to sell. I need to trim, reduce exposure and go into something. But you know, bonds are earning less than 2% in many cases and down 2% for the year because of rising rates, then it could be a good alternative. But look, the, the insurance companies are giving you guys these guarantees and they're really, they know that you would have to earn less than 3% on a balanced portfolio and live past age, in this case, 100 for them to ever be on the hook to have to pay you any money. Until then, they're just giving you back your own principal. But keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay, let me go real quick. Let's see if I can even have time to get into this because I had, was actually running late on this and probably spend a whole segment on it. You know, cryptocurrency is one of the most common questions that I get, especially since uh, there's now the Bitcoin futures ETF that launched. Um, before that, it was a trust. You could do the grayscale and you know fees were 2% plus. <clears throat> but on Friday, October 15th, the SEC approved the first Bitcoin futures ETF. And that was one of the reasons why you saw Bitcoin jump through 60 grand. Um, so people are asking about it. Now, here's how we look at it in terms of a company. We, if, 
I can tell clients how to go get it and, and where the best place to buy it is, um, what to do to make sure they're secure. They have to have very... You have to make sure that your computers are newer. You have a password protection program with dual authentication before you want to put your money into something digital. If you're hackable and somebody hacks your Bitcoin wallet, wherever you're you know, keeping it, you're, you're screwed. So you got to be careful. For me, we like to deal with the world of investments, right? Um, where it's, here's a company and this is what they sell. And then here's their expenses and here's their profit. And you know, what's the direction of revenue growth? And these, these cryptocurrencies are always depending on somebody else. It's a store of value, right? But it's very interesting. It's very fun to watch. Um, I definitely make sure that you're educated on it. And my issue is that there's a lot of good cryptocurrencies out there, but there's a lot of crap that are involved in multi-level marketing, pumping and dumping on social media. A lot of people are going to get hurt from this. Um, not a big fan of this new Bitcoin futures ETF. I just, if, if you're a person that's going to say, should I buy the ETF or because I think that cryptocurrency is going to go up and I think Bitcoin is going to go up in the long run or should I just go buy it directly at like Coinbase or Robinhood? You know, unless you're a trader and you're going to be doing something active with these ETFs, I don't think that it's a good idea to get it versus just buying Bitcoin directly. First of all, the underlying ETF buys futures on Bitcoin. And when it comes to futures, you can end up in a contango situation where... It's a mispricing. When you, when you have an asset that's very volatile, there's a lot of risk involved. The futures contracts can end up in a situation of contango. So know about that first, where the you're buying at a price that's higher than the current price of Bitcoin. All right, as it is already, when people buy Bitcoin through Coinbase or PayPal or Robinhood, they're already paying a pretty large transaction fee of 2 to 4% minimum that, that you really don't see. So if you look at when your transaction goes through versus the actual trading price of that cur- cryptocurrency, you're paying pretty large commissions to buy and sell. It's just like the olden days in stocks. And so you can have this contango situation. Um, this, the size of the future market for, for cryptocurrency is already very small. So that, those, that contango issue, that mispricing can, can be... Um, a lot higher. The tax treatment of Bitcoin futures is a lot worse than owning Bitcoin directly. So keep that in mind. It's you got to learn about the tax situation. Not only do you have contango issues, and you got the trading costs. On top of this, this ETF has an expense ratio of 0.95%, which is lower than the the, the grayscale one. So that's good. It's getting better, but. It's just it's just too much underlying costs involved. If you're just going to say I want I'm going to own Bitcoin for a long time and I'm not going to be a trader of it, I just don't get why you'd want to buy the ETF. Um, and it's like, I think it's you know when you when you buy and sell cryptocurrency on like Coinbase or Robinhood, it's it's a little easier to do in this situation. Um, Bitcoin futures ETF will trade during normal market hours, but Bitcoin can trade twenty four seven. And so there's more liquidity there. So while there's some convenience and some investor protections and um, it's showing that it's just making cryptocurrency acceptance of more regulatory bodies, um, I don't like the fees. I don't like the idea of the futures on it. If you're just going to go long on Bitcoin, make sure you have really good cybersecurity on your 
personal system and you know look at a coinbase type of situation so keep that in mind i know a lot of people are asking my opinion on it and i'm not going to buy it i just still rather buy the crypto directly all right thanks for listening please tell a friend about the show you can find me at chadburton.com. Got a team of over 50 plus certified financial planners, CFAs on the portfolio, tax team, estate planning team. We got it all for you. Check it out. Chadburton.com. Podcast links are all there. Have a great day. Please tell a friend about the show. Bye.